Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. Listen, I want to remind you to try our online gospel intensives. They only take two hours. They're inexpensive, and they can change your life. The first one, Forgiving Path, if you can't forgive something, and by the way, that everybody. And uh, the the dance, if you really feel like you've fallen short of God's expectations or the expectations of others, you're, you're lacking the experience of enoughness and connectedness, shame and loneliness, uh, check them out. They're on the, the website, The Forgiving Path and Gospel I mean, uh, and the Dance. All right. I want to get back to the temptation narratives. And remember, we're unpacking the temptation narrative, thinking that it's less about that Jesus defeated Satan uh, and so fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Look, that was never in question, in my opinion, but doesn't that make sense? I mean, it is that, but that's burying the headline. There's something in the way that Jesus defeated him that tells us something. That's not only eye-opening, but to our end, it's also helpful helpful for us to be aware when we begin to climb that mount to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. And like I already said, if we don't get this, we will misunderstand and we will misapply the Sermon of the Mount in our lives. No judgment, I'm just saying. Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That makes sense. The tempter came to him and said, if you are, really, since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy. So we said last time that one of the things that Matthew is doing here is showing us how Jesus is using this epic slugfest to flesh out and to model for us what we are calling spirit birthed faith or spirit faith. So we want to imagine Jesus being led, right, actively listening to the Spirit the whole time. Uh, So I imagine something in his head, keep walking until I tell you to stop, turn here, uh, go around that rock, climb that ravine, into that cave. I'll tell you when to stop, when to take a rest, when to drink. Oh, we're here, stop. That's normal op procedure for Jesus because he's walking in spirit faith. It's not normal op procedure for me. I just find it ridiculously hard. My brain works against that, right? I want to know. I want to prove the plan. If it's a trip, tell me why. And it's my right, right? Choice. I'm an American. I want to negotiate quid pro quo. So God, if I do this, you're going to bless me, right? It's normal human behavior in the fallen world. And my brain is hardwired to protect me from possible failure and painful humiliation, uh, helpless activity, if I can prevent it. Trusting is not natural to me. But Jesus trusted. He really trusted the Trinity, the other two persons. And again, the Trinity stuff is way out of my pay grade, and I'm not entering into a dialogue about what Jesus did or didn't know, his omniscience. It's a great discussion for another time, and I have lots of opinions. But here's the point. I can say with conviction that most of the time, I don't know where God's taken me, really. And my history is that often he takes me into the valley of the shadow of death a lot. And I don't like that. And my brain remembers that. But spirit faith walking is what we're called to do. And if we look at the Bible, it seems inevitable that that's what's required, right? Listen to the biblical pattern. 
you know, Eve, yeah, I know the tree is a good tree, but you trust me, I've got your best interest here. Well, how'd that go? Abraham, I want you to go to the place that I'll send you. Just keep walking along the international highway from Ur, and I'll give you further instructions. Moses, when you see the pillar of fire, follow it. James, John, Peter, follow me now. Don't worry about the boat, your livelihood, your families, your business, what other people think of you. Just follow me. I'm not going to share why. I'm not going to explain myself or even my theology. You just need to trust me. Paul, don't preach in Asia on this trip. I know you had planned and you raised money to do that. You're going to disappoint your supporters. I want you to go to Macedonia now. No, I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> now, notice that there is no need to read into Jesus's temptation narrative, the Spirit spelling it all out. Like, okay, Jesus, we're going to go up there. It's going to be a 40-day fast, so eat something before we go. My guess is the Spirit faith Jesus is humbly waiting for directions. Day one, came and went. He's tired. No food at dinner time. Okay, day two, still no food. Day five, Come on, day 20, really? I mean, even Taco Bell begins to look good around day 21. Okay, nothing personal, Taco Bell. It's an inside joke. Shout out to my youngest. 40 days. I've never done a 40 days fast. Don't want to. But Jesus is practicing, and I think modeling for us, holy waiting, holy trusting, spirit, faith. He was willing to listen and deeply motivated to not just listen, but to follow, to agree with, to give up uh, input, probably. Jesus didn't need to, it would seem, humanly speaking. Look, this is radical behavior. Even as I'm saying it, I can hear the radical nature of this, but it's only because we don't do it or we don't find it appealing. We don't even want to imagine that this is normative. No judgment, right? Me too. Well, how do we know that this is what's going on here? Well, look at Deuteronomy 8. This is the passage that Jesus quotes back to Satan as his rebuttal. So listen to it, right? starting at 8.1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way, okay, whole commandment, whole way that the Lord your God has led you, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So there's a lot there that he might humble you. Well, that makes sense. Test you to know what is in your heart. That makes sense, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Um, Again, we're going to come back to those commandments. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All right. The whole way, the whole commandments, every word, keep his commandments. What was the whole way that God led Israel? The Every word that comes from his mouth. Well, my guess is that most modern Christians would think we're talking about the Ten Commandments or the surrounding case law in Exodus and Leviticus about temple and worship. All right. It does. I get that logic. Remember, and, and, and Jesus is a hypernomian, right? So he's for the law, and he's a screaming perfectionist, ultimately. He co-wrote it. Uh, we're supposed to obey the law to the letter. And if we do, we would be blessed, and the code is live and multiply and possess the land. But there's more. In Deuteronomy 131, God is portrayed as leading. Uh, this is the whole way. 
uh, it's active, it's intimate, it's step-by-step, it's day-by-day. He says this, this is verse 31, chapter 1. In the desert, you saw how the Lord carried you, as another metaphor for what we're doing. As a father carries his son, as the Spirit is carrying Jesus, right? All the way you went until you reached this place. That's, that's That's the thing. That's what Deuteronomy 8 imagines, humanity dependent and in intimate relationship with the creator. God carries the spirit faith walking person. He he says things, he does things. It's the furthest thing from deism. And yeah, there's the giving of the commandment in Deuteronomy 5, but God speaks more than that. Remember how they were led by pillar of smoke and fire? That's God speaking. The phrase the Lord said is just penetrates Deuteronomy as a personal aspect to it. It's not just a couple of tablets. Uh, the and by the way, if it was just the Ten Commandments, Israel would never have made it through the wilderness. So they would have gone into the Promised Land quicker because the Ten Commandments doesn't tell them a single thing about geography or timing or, or, or that sort of thing, right? They needed God to give them the whole story the whole way. So could Jesus be saying to Satan and to us, look, Satan, it's not about bread. It's not about my hunger. I wish I wasn't hungry. But Here's what I'm all about. I'm listening and following directions of the Spirit. That's what I'm modeling for my followers, every word that I hear. And when he tells me to make bread, I will. I'll obey. And by the way, I hope it has something to do with eating. And it turns out it did. Jesus will be generously fed in just a little while. So we're going to continue to speak of this spirit-faith posture all the way through Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus teaches, I want to to do what he says. Honestly, I would want to want to do what he said, but if I were honest, I don't. I won't. It just doesn't seem like I can. My brain's working against me. I need power and new motivation that's more powerful than my inner working models and consciousness. I need spirit faith. Let me give you an example. Take the log out of your eye, Jesus will say. Well, first of all, I can't even see the log. It's a metaphor. I can't grab it. And second, it's there for a reason. It's worked for me. I like it to some degree. And even if I could grab it, it's going to come right back. It's not an ordinary log. It's it's me. It's my log. It's my brain. It's those inner working models. It's how I deal with things. I don't need an education. I don't need new guidelines and a PowerPoint. I don't even need a reforming Messiah. I need a rescuer. Forgive seven, 70 times seven times. Come on, you got to be kidding me, right? That's fictional. That's Sasquatch. That's a unicorn. That's Santa. That's the Easter Bunny. It's a great idea, but it's not real. Am I alone here when I say how embarrassingly bad I am at this? It it is unnatural to me. I mean, not in my God image, but again, I've got the flesh to contend with. I want control. I want to choose. I want my rights. I want to believe that I can do it. I don't want to be a puppet. All of that spirit faith immediately sounds too cultish. Most of my reaction to it is subconscious. I trigger, and and I can't choose to change it, right, on my own. Do we, can we see, do we see that this is the only context where the first temptation makes any sense? If Jesus took matters into his own hands and did something good, right, feed himself, nothing wrong with that. He would be unfaithful, spiritually speaking. He would have stopped following the Spirit and did what was right in his own eyes. Again, a good thing. But biblically, technically, the model's cracked, and he becomes a vile rebel. 
he would have rejected spirit faith and did he, he would have done the Eve thing, right? No better or worse than Eve. And that didn't turn out so well. The law would approve of his choice, meaning to feed himself, but he would have failed as being the faithful approved of son. Satan would have crushed the head of the seed of the woman, not the other way around. So now we can see the despicable brilliance and subtleness of this temptation, and Satan does it all the time. He was targeting human unreasonability and uncomfortableness with spirit faithfulness. Right? So check this out. We are now learning that doing good is not the essence of good. Doing right is not the essence of righteousness. Depending upon the only good and righteous God for all of our steps and acts is the essence of goodness and righteousness. Play that back a couple of times and, and yeah, push back. Bill at gospel-app.com. But yeah, I think I'm right on this one. So I can do a lot of good things. Biblically approved things. I can point to a verse where it says it's a good thing. Torah things and still be way out of sync with God. Isn't that what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? We'll get to it. Just before the parable of the builder who's wondering about sand or rock for a foundation. This is Matthew 7, verses 21. And he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? There it is. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's good. And in your name, drive out demons? That's good. Perform miracles? Those are generally really good. Verse 23, that I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. We, we weren't in sync at all. Away from me, you evildoers. You, you, you weren't good doers. So does the will, what, is, what, is Matthew, what does Jesus mean? This is the one I'm suggesting who's presently internally motivated, which requires a daily miracle to want to be in sync with God now, daily miracle, and now, tomorrow, and now. It's the person who's shifted, you know, it's better to say has been shifted by a miracle from doing what they want, or better, what they think is good, what they think that God wants them to do, and then they shifted to, made to shift to actively using spirit birth faith to submit to what God wants them to do, what God thinks is good right now. They have a new spirit birth heart, and it's winning the battle right now with their falling nature. It's an ongoing battle till you die. So they, in the moment, desire to do his bidding, to do his, uh, his good. Everything else is building a house on sand. So I think we've misunderstood that whole parable, but we'll get to that. So, it's not about them prophesying or casting out demons or feeding people. Rather, the question is, are they right now being led by his spirit faith, by his spirit? If they are not depending upon him, they are doing good things outside of his direction. Can we see how damn subtle this is? It's Jesus making stones into bread. Now, um, it's not subtle to God. He could say of any of us, look, I'm looking at you and what you just did and think you're not really a lot better than Satan. He could have done that. He does good all the time, but he's never in sync with me. That's the definition of evil, not just doing harm, but also doing good outside of my direction. Look, remember the tree of life? The, the fruit was a good tree with good fruit, and I bet it looked tasty. I bet it was tasty. Why? Because it was good. God says so. But they stepped out of spirit birth faith, whatever that looked like then, and became their own definer of good. That was the subtlety of, of Satan's temptation. He did it before. 
It's a big cataclysmic shift in our understanding of what walking in faith looks like. Eve did not do the will of the Father, ultimately. She did what was right in her own eyes. She went judges on her. Good tree, good fruit, and the dominoes started falling. But not with Jesus. Good suggestion. Good outcome, right? Being fed, satisfying, but it wouldn't have been doing the will of the Father, and so he opted out. See the difference? The blockhead tempter should have realized ahead of this that Jesus couldn't not be Jesus. Jesus was this kind of faith incarnate. This was who he was. He was always going to win. And and he's always more motivated to follow the Spirit, do everything the Father says to satisfy, than to satisfy his hunger. Me? (laughs) Well, nine times out of ten, hunger, at least a certain point. Uh, Staying in sync with God, the Spirit, and my inner being? Yeah, I just find that so hard. I'd like to be that guy, but my track record is abysmal, and that scares me. It, It humbles me. I am finding... I need daily, ongoing miracles to make me a little bit more that person, and we all do. Uh, Jesus loves me, right? He's already paid for my falling short of that, but I want to do that, Uh, and and yet again, I won't. I knew a couple. Here's an example of this. Uh, One of the most godly couples I've ever known. I was baby Christian, and they told me their story just days after they got married, right? God called one of them to missions work in China. This was a long time ago. They were in their 90s when I met them 40 years ago. So uh, th- this was when, you know, there, you didn't get cell phones in China and it was closed down. And the other uh, married, uh, part of the married couple was called to the former Soviet Union. And they both obeyed. They contacted each other when they could through rare mail service. They were separated for 20 years on the mission field knowing that's where God wanted them, until God wonderfully called them to the same mission field. They were the were most loving and intimate couple I ever knew. They had ridiculous faith that scared me and, and excited me as a, as a young Christian. See, my head, uh, can, I, can I share some of my experience with trying, you know? So how do I really know if it's God talking? Uh, right? What if God's? Uh, what if God asked me to do something that's bizarre and makes me look stupid? Or, right? What if God tells me to do something that would lead my friends and family to be critical or judge me? What if God asked me to risk all of my comfort and chooses to lead me into a desert to be tempted by a tester, <laughs> or just points me to a desert and doesn't tell me why? What if God sends me to a mission field or to apologize to that neighbor I don't like? And I know that's going to cost me. Yeah. Uh, what if, I mean, think Hosea, what if God says, go and marry a prostitute? Think, think of Thanksgiving dinners with that family. Oh my goodness. Isaiah stripped down to the buff and, and publicly, what, wait, stop. That's in Isaiah 20. Or Peter, go with the unclean Cornelius. What if God doesn't say anything and I just feel stupid or alone or like a failure and I just keep walking? I just feel shame. I'm shame prone anyway. There's silence, more silence, more silence. What if something is broken inside of me and I just can't find God's bandwidth and that's my problem? My receiver's broken. Am I just supposed to sit and wait in my failure? And how long? When do I decide for myself? When when do I wait for God? Right? So let me say this. These questions scare me. They bother me. I don't want to bring them up when I'm teaching or when I'm discipling or even in the mirror. But these are the right conversations we should be having. It is difficult. And we will mess up. And that's why we need to be reminded of how much 
Jesus rescues and adores failures. If you haven't been through the dance, the-dance.org, that's really the point of the whole thing. On the way, you will need it. And by the way, there's no reason to see Jesus fasting as stoicism or denial. All right, We don't want to go that direction. I don't imagine a silent Jesus. When was he silent? He was no doubt praying continuously to God, give me this day my daily bread. Didn't he say that was how we pray? That would be good. So it's not unfaithfulness. It doesn't lack spirit faith to, to want inter, inter, intervention, to, be, to want to be fed, or to even ask for it. That's not a lack of faith. That's great faith. Maybe you could argue the opposite, but Jesus was the only one who could ever say, hey, Father, I've earned this. You said so. And didn't you just said I was your favorite son. Well, come on, a Twinkie? A Snickers? That'd be great now, right? Would that really mess up the thing? Or, Father... I don't want this cup, but not my will, but your will be done. So that's okay. Do that. Struggle and get other people around you as you struggle. All right. I just want to make sure we're not miscommunicating. This podcast, as well as everything we do at Gospel App, we're leaning into being shame-free. We're not going to tell you to just try harder to be spirit-faithful. We're not going to tell you that you can just pull it off on your own if you were a little more convicted. Stop that. You're just going to crash and burn. You're going to feel more shame. We call it spirit faith for a simple reason. It's his, not yours. Don't try to live a life of spirit faith on your own. You don't have the muscle group. You have to access the spirit's faith. It won't go well if you you do it on your own. Maybe you've got it into your head that you can just gin up faith within you. Maybe you've been told that, like it's some atrophied muscle group that if you just did it more, it would grow. Stop it. It's not in you. You can't do this faith. You, you, you just can't. You can, though, access it. Now, I don't want to read too much into it, but it's instructive for us. I think that Jesus's rescue gig started with the Spirit landing on him at the baptism. Just saying. Again, over my pay grade, but it's instructive to me because the Spirit came into me when I was saved in my spirit baptism. So uh, the Spirit's there. We involve him. Spirit faith, the real stuff, comes from the spirit in your inner being, not from your brain, not from choice. It's a celestial power, not a human power, that makes you, makes me begin to want to engage the often difficult, the often painful kingdom plan to want to be in sync and to be willing to die for the sake of the plan. And remember, the plan is to rescue others. My modus operandi, my MO, to rescue me and to protect me from hurt. My brain is to one degree or another standing against the kingdom plan. I, I, I'm just observing. I wish it were different. So how do we get spirit faith? We ask the spirit to give it to me right now, and then tomorrow, then the next day, then the next day. It's a fruit of the spirit. By the way, it's in the list of Galatians and the fruit of the spirit, 5 uh, verse 22 to 23. Translators usually gloss it faithfulness. All right, it's it's that too, but simply the word pistis is faith, and it's the spirit faith because it's faith that comes from the spirit. Every other time in the letter, uh, pistis is translated faith, not faithfulness. I'm just saying. So we probably should gloss it spirit faith in the in the list just to be clear whose it is and how to get it. And that's probably partly why we've messed this up historically and theologically and personally. Spirit faith is of God's DNA, not mine, not yours. No wonder we're such underachievers, why we fall short of expectation, why we've felt such shame, why many of you are flocking away from church. So don't try to do Sermon on the Mount without it. 
you'll crash and burn. That's that's the big deal. That's why I think one of the reasons why Matthew put this in ahead and why God used Satan, right, uh, as, as a, a display point. Simply put, ask the Spirit for his faith, and you can do it. And keep asking. How long? Until you experience it. A day, a week, a month, 40 years. I don't know. Everybody's different. Be, and be careful. I'm kind of you know, being a little snarky here. He may give it to you. And then what? Well, then you're stuck wanting to follow Jesus, and he may lead you into some nasty, harsh, dehumanizing, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual wilderness. He might just mess up your carefully honed career plans. And by the way, likely will. And your critical inner voice will go accusatory. <laughs> and, and then, right, you'll need a rescuer. And, and by, the, by the way, you'll be a rescuer of humanity. It's a great calling. Well, there's one other uh, observation that I want to quickly make from the uh, great Russian author Dostoevsky. Uh, Satan had a plan B. This is from his brothers Karamazov. It's fantastic. This is so insightful. Uh, I've, I've done whole lectures on this. The angry rationalist brother Ivan wrote a, Christianal, a creative fiction about Jesus returning in the middle of the 16th, 17th century Inquisition Spain. And, and that's when the corrupted medieval institutional Catholic Church was trying to crush the young reformational spirit of Luther and Calvin. The story has Jesus coming back to earth, being arrested, and then subject, subjected to interrogation of the Grand Inquisitor, who first lectures Jesus about how badly he mishandled the three questions in the wilderness, right? What, what we're covering in Matthew 4. And he captures, he really does, just how strange and uh, unhuman, inhuman, this spirit faith is. He's arguing, the Grand Inquisitor, that if you want to reach the world, which is hungry, needy, stop talking about spirit faith and do miracles. Feed them. And if you feed them, they will worship you. And if you don't, then we, the institutional church, will, in your name, Jesus, uh, feed them. And we won't require that they need you or need faith, this, this ongoing humiliating thing at all. So listen to my abridged version of the first lecture of the Grand Inquisitor. Here we go. Satan's first question to you, Jesus, in the wilderness was implicitly this. You went into the world with empty hands with only a shallow promise of a philosophical notion of spirit faith, which simple men and women in their normal unruliness could not possibly understand. No, in fact, this so-called spirit faith naturally disturbs them, for nothing is harder to support and sustain in this world than faith that doesn't even come from us. But look at something solid, something that can be held and seen. Look at those stones in the parched, barren wilderness. Turn them to bread, and humanity will run after you like a flock of sheep, grateful and obedient, though, if the truth were known, they will always be a little afraid that you might withdraw the bread from them. But you would have given them something that they could get their hands around, something that they could trust and experience. You would give them the miracle of ending their immediate hunger. You would be relevant. But you would not turn the stones to bread to satisfy their perceived need, hunger that is. Rather, you chose to deny humans food in order to highlight them highlight to them this philosophical notion of spirit faith. And no doubt you thought, what is this spirit faith worth if obedience is bought with bread? So you said, man does not live by bread alone. A beautiful thought. But you couldn't see that you opened the door for another savior. Of course, a counterfeit, but 
he or it will provide bread for humanity and they will follow him. All you had to do was feed them and then ask of them virtue and loyalty. So we, the institutional church, the Grand Inquisitor says, religion will do what you chose not to do and we will do it in your name, of course. And in the end, humans will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but feed us. We've thought this further. We thought this through further than you did. This so-called spirit faith is absolutely incompatible with satisfying hunger for all. Those who follow us will understand too. They can never be free for they're weak and vicious and worthless and rebellious. And you totally missed the bigger point. You promised men and women the bread of heaven, but that bread is ethereal and mystical and mysterious. It can't satisfy hunger pangs. It can't compete with real hard earthly bread in the eyes of the weak, ever sinful, ignoble race of humanity. Do you see what you did, Jesus? You foolishly rejected the one infallible ecumenical banner which would have gathered all people of all colors and stripes together as one worshiping people. You could have provided them an end to hunger. But no, you rejected that for the sake of freedom and the so-called distant bread of heaven. Give them bread and they will worship you, for nothing is more certain than bread. Wow. Oh my goodness, that's so powerful. The Grand Inquisitor criticizes Jesus for missing a great opportunity. Forget modeling some ethereal spirit faith that people can't do on their own and won't do it and can only get if they humiliate themselves over and over and admit their inability to do good or even discern good and have and have to run empty-handed to God over and over to kid. And possibly, if Jesus is the model, to stay hungry or worse. Instead, he should have not only created bread, but introduced himself to the world as the never-ending source of bread, a bread fountain. Then the Grand Inquisitor says they would have adored you. They would have followed you. They would have worshipped you. Isn't that the point? <laughs> well, honestly, my brain goes, yeah, that kind of sounds reasonable, actually. I kind of agree a little bit, humanly speaking, with the Grand Inquisitor. And it warns me that if Jesus was doing it right and went hungry for 40 days, what might God require of me? This calling, honestly, it isn't the best packaging and advertising if you want to grow a church. Come, and you might be subjected to 40 days of hunger or persecution, but this is what Jesus will say throughout his ministry. I often think that the church would be an easy sell if it were a gigantic food bank, but the kingdom's, God's kingdom's requirement is spirit faith, if you want to be a part of it. And I'm not saying you're not saved, but if you're not walking in part of it, and we don't naturally have spirit faith, uh, right? Uh, it requires dependence daily, and we don't do dependence, so deal with it. We'll say more. I'm going to pick it up here on the next podcast. Doesn't this change how we begin to hear the Sermon on the Mount? You'll see it really does. It's so much better uh, than maybe we have thought. And many of us have been through the Sermon on the Mount so many times, we don't want to hear it again because it just brings us shame because we see again and again how we fail. You know, that last time we heard the series, we went, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work really hard. Now we hear it again and go, oh my goodness. But the Jesus who will stand and preach to the hungry, failed masses and me is not just a qualified teacher of moral principles. He brings something more. Again, seven things. He's hypernomian. No one considers the law higher than Jesus. Two, he has come to rescue and love failures. Three, he's the teacher of life principles, the greatest ever. 
but he's the only one who does them perfectly. Four, when he speaks, power goes forth and actually changes people's lives, identities, and motivation. Five, he's, he's, he regularly humiliates himself to rescue humiliated people. And no wonder he's approachable. You can, you can look up into his face and not be rejected. Six, he's the only approved son of God ever. You are not. Seven, he is modeling spirit faith walk, which is not natural to us. Uh, WWJD is not enough in the kingdom of God. Truth told, I don't even want a DWJD, or I would have. To repeat myself, we now learn that doing good is not the essence of good. Depending upon the only good God for all of our steps is the essence of good. And in the end, we'll end up doing more good. Well, we'll look at the second temptation in the next podcast. And again, help us get the word out to to hurting Christians, to stumbling Christians, to failed Christians. That's everybody. This is likely a different uh, stuff than you've heard related to the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus or Christianity or the kingdom. But I'm guaranteeing the Sermon on the Mount is going to pop off the page. You'll hear it differently. and It'll be so much more encouraging. Jesus is not saying, if you only got your act together and worked harder and did these things, then I'm going to clarify and all would be well. You're not going to do it. <laughs> right? He's saying that you should, but we're not. He's also saying you haven't, you won't, you don't, you can't, and you desperately need a rescuer, a loving rescuer, and I'm that person. All right. Until next time, take heart, child of God. Our world can feel chaotic and uncertain. But we don't have to live enslaved to fear. Christ has promised me and you his peace and throughout scripture has provided powerful tools and practical steps to help us experience greater freedom. I'm Jennifer Slattery, lead host of the Faith Over Fear podcast, inviting you to join me and my team as together we learn how to starve our fears and feed our faith. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com or wherever you access podcast content.